Hello, this is Dr. Jean Abshire, uh, Professor of Political Science and International Studies, and this is the International Power Hour. I am here with my colleague, Dr. Cliff Staten, and also I am super excited uh, to introduce you to our guest this morning, Dr. Sarah Watkins. Um, we're especially excited about Sarah because she is an IU Southeast alumna. She uh, studied history and political science here, and then went on to get master's degrees in African studies and women's studies and then went on to get her PhD in African history so with and her, we take all the credit and we that. take all the credit absolutely every bit of credit for her awesomeness uh, and so with with her biography you can perhaps guess that the topic uh, on the International Power Hour today has something to do with the African continent um, and and basically uh, we're gonna do kind of a an overview of things going on in the 54 countries or some of the 54 countries not all of them we're not we only have an hour <laughs> uh, but uh, the the African continent in general is not very much in our news. It is broadly neglected, but it is important to uh, know. And uh, I guess maybe that will be our first question, actually, Sarah. Why do people need to know about what's happening in various places on the African continent? Um, I just, uh, before, before we start, I just want to say thanks for inviting me. Um, it's, a, it's an honor to be on your show, and um, I remember fondly my time at IU Southeast uh, and with both of you as professors. I'm so proud um, of you and all you've accomplished. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. Um, I, I think why people should care about Africa is, um, is because Africa is part of the world. Um, I, think, I think we should care broadly because... We live in a globalized society. We live in a world that is profoundly interconnected. Um, Africa has the, um, the most rapidly growing economy of any continent in the world. Um, Africa has the youngest population of any continent in the world. Um, you've got a lot of people coming up. Um, uh, you have a lot of entrepreneurship. You have a lot of people seeking education. You have a lot of people seeking opportunities, um, particularly in countries that are really resource rich. Um, you have um, you you have a population that's sort of just uh, on the cusp of um, moving into uh, the type of economic development that characterized huge growth in other parts of the world, um, and so all of those things I think should be should be on our radar in a in a variety of ways. So we either pay attention or we might be behind the curve uh, in in being able to engage with a young and dynamic and increasingly prosperous region of the world is what I hear you saying. Yeah, Africa is ahead of the curve. And so we, I think we ignore Africa at our own, I don't want to say peril, but I think we ignore Africa. I say at peril. Our own. Okay, you can say peril. <laughs> but it is, uh, but but it is difficult. Effort. I mean, I think it's, no, it is difficult to keep up with what's going on in the continent of Africa. There's very little in newspapers. Uh, you know, uh, if you listen to NPR, they will periodically do pieces on, on Africa. The Today. BBC probably covers it better than any 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 media company in the world, quite honestly. Uh, mm -hmm. But you have to you have to consciously uh, look for it. it it's not it's not like um, uh, covering President Trump. So. Right. <laughs> so little is. So, really. <laughs> so, so, Sarah, beyond what's, uh, w why it is important uh, to 
to our community uh, to know about. Uh, what are some What are some really? And before we start getting into to things going on in in various countries, um, what are some things that uh, you know you think just basic stuff that people should know, assuming that, again, since, as Cliff said, it's so hard to get information without actively seeking it out, um, you know, our assumption is that probably most people don't know very much. So, so what, are some, what are some basics that people should know? Sure. Um, I, th I think there are three things that will help us sort of frame what we're going to talk about today and for people going forward, um, if you want to be able to do better, better research on your own uh, into the African continent. Um, the first is that, as anywhere, most politics are local. Um, we get a bird's eye view because of the nature of international news coverage, but where we see conflict that often gets described very generically as ethnic conflict, what we're really seeing is local conflict, often over resources, because that's what most conflict is about. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the Democratic Republic of Congo today, but I think this is one of the places where this is most manifest. Um, we have a big national conflict going on in DRC right now, but you also have the ongoing um, the ongoing conflict in Ituri province in eastern Congo, uh, which is really about land and cattle. And it's been about land and cattle for several decades now. Um, and land and cattle in East Africa is, is what people fight about. Um, people have fought about it for a very long time. Um, and this is not an effort to say that, you know, these are primordial conflicts that are never going to get solved. Right. But this is what people all over the world have, have fought about for, for centuries, for millennia. This is what Europeans fight about. This is what Asians fight about. This is what everybody fights about. Um, but to understand those, you have to understand local context. And so local context is really important. Um, and that brings me to my second point, which is that um, a lot of bigger international journalism about Africa suffers from a lack of people on the ground. Uh, budgets tend to be focused elsewhere, and Africa correspondents will cover stories in many different countries. Uh, if you listen to NPR, Afavia Kutartin is literally everywhere. She she's is. in Johannesburg, she's in Dakar, she's in, um, she's in Accra, and I love hearing her say all of those words. Um, yes. But she's, she, you know, she's kind of all over the place, just to have her voice for one day. One you day. know, Sarah, um, it's interesting to note also that <laughs> at, when the Cold War came to an end, we cut much of our embassy staff in Africa and there is there and you're right and even the the largest news like the New York Times those that typically had large foreign uh, correspondents many of them were pulled out of Africa as well so that was the peace right. dividend right cold wars over we're going to save so much money because the cold wars over and and so conflicts right. over and so you know right. we don't need to, to pay attention ended completely yeah. Yeah. all of history <laughs> wasn't there a, i think there was a book um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah but so it I didn't really end you have to do a little more work and um I, I think what we end up missing then is that deep context um if you look at even journalists who win pulitzer prizes a lot for writing about africa it's very surface it's very playing into these um these kind of frankly tired narratives about african conflict um, and so uh, I encourage people to seek out local news sources. African, African countries have their own news sources. Uh, there are a lot of them. There's a lot of opposition media. There's a lot of government media. Um, Twitter is awesome for this. Twitter is like the best place on the planet for, for African journalism. Um, but also you have a lot of academic work that can, that can lay a more detailed and nuanced groundwork for this. Um, and so I encourage people to, to look for academics who are working in Africa. Um, we're all over the place. We... Um, do work in history and sociology and political science in um, education in every field that you can possibly imagine. So, so look for that. Are there um, any? And then the 
Sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, are there any particular, and obviously when you're talking, <laughs> you said local news sources, and the question that I'm, I'm about to ask uh, is completely contradictory to that. Are there any you could recommend? Because <laughs> I mean, with 54 countries, that could be a list of, you know, more, well over, I mean, right. potentially hundreds of, of uh, recommendations. But is there any, especially on like Twitter, is there anybody who's, you know, Maybe oh, particularly noteworthy, <laughs> horrible question. Um, that, that's difficult to answer for Africa in general. It's um, 54 countries. Is, that's I mean, example, not a I good question. Stuff because I'm a, um, my work is mostly taking place in Rwanda and Uganda. Um, so uh, Rwanda is a particularly interesting place because you have um, a lot of media that is very um, sympathetic to the government that some people describe as government propaganda. I don't. I don't know that I go that far. Um, but you have, you know, sort of more official news sources like the New Times um, in Rwanda that sort of toes the government line. Um, but then you have great independent journalism going on as well. Um, that's very critical of the regime. Um, um, great Lakes Post, I think, is is one of those that you could look at. There's also, depending on what languages you speak, there's a whole variety of um, not just anglophone but francophone. Uh, journalism going on there. There's um, there are a lot of news sources in Kenya, Rwanda, or Swahili. Um, so probably if, most listeners know, won't have that got, option. Sort of, yeah, <laughs> English. Out, um, if you want to. Um, the other thing is that people who are reporting, uh, especially through Twitter, are really responsive to questions. <laughs> so if you ask questions, if you DM them, um, people are people are really friendly and really happy to talk to you. Um, about what's going on, and will usually connect you to other sources. I, I found people have just been really generous with with their knowledge. Cool. Um, so there's no there's no wrong way to dig in. <laughs> I mean, just kind of dig in. Assume that you're not an expert, <laughs> and, and just dig in. I don't have um, to assume on that one. I know. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the best way to just approach approach anything. Um, the the final piece I think, and this is we're gonna I'm gonna put my historian hat on for a minute. Um, and this is, this is sort of his, uh, historian pet peeve that I'm going to bring up here. But um, one of the things that you will often hear about conflicts in Africa is that it's the result of these false colonial boundaries. Um, colonialism destroyed everything. It was, you know, it was the worst thing. Colonialism was terrible. It was the worst thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface all of what I'm saying by saying that colonialism was terrible. Um, colonial boundaries absolutely created problems in some places. But, but politics in Africa are far more complex than a boundary got drawn and Africans were just too, you know, gullible about their boundaries, which is kind of what that narrative um, ends up saying or implying. European colonization did not erase 5,000 years of African civilization. Uh, in some cases, elites from pre-colonial times are still in power or vying for power. Um, you're talking about, in some cases, like 70 years. People were still alive at the end of colonialism that were alive at the beginning of colonialism. Um, in many cases, they worked with colonial governments to retain some measure of power um, and then saw themselves further empowered again at independence. Uh, in other places, colonial governments elevated groups that formerly did not hold much power. And so the conflict is between old elites and new elites is what you see um, kind of emerging. So in many places, what has changed is who is at the top. Um, but what has changed on the ground for, for the poor and disenfranchised um, often is very little. Um, 
other than, you know, people have cell phones now. <laughs> um, but in a lot of cases, again, it's these, it's these same conflicts over land, it's these same conflicts over resources. The people at the top matter a little bit less. And I think that's very similar to thinking about politics in almost any other part of the world. I think we can think about politics in the United States that way, um, that people who have been disenfranchised historically continue to be disenfranchised in a lot of ways. Um, that's, that's a thing that hasn't changed through a whole lot of revolutions, through a whole lot of, um, of other kinds of conflict. And so I think when we think about what's going on in Africa, I think we have to talk about who, who we're really interested in, who we're really talking about. Okay, well, the, the idea of looking at who's in power and who's not in power <laughs> um, sort of opens the door to uh, what is going on in South Africa. South Africa has actually uh, managed to penetrate the the news bubble <laughs> into yeah. uh, into the U.S. in the in the, the last days. Uh, it's been you know in the news this uh, this morning, uh, and that is all about uh, the conflict within uh, the ruling party in South Africa, the African National Congress, which has um, a history of of bringing democracy to South Africa, uh, but they also have a lot of leadership issues going on at this point. It was clear it was it was a revolutionary group and in fact classified as a terrorist group at one time and now it's a legitimate political party that runs candidates for office. Uh, in fact when we think of South Africa most Americans even if they know know very little about South Africa, South Africa at least know the name Nelson Mandela. Yep. And have heard mm -hmm. of the word apartheid. So uh, we've got the ANC, Sarah, that's been in power since, in the, since the move away from our apartheid in 1994. So what's going on? Does everybody know apartheid? Can we assume that? I don't know. Do we want to define that? Maybe probably? just briefly, yeah. Who wants to do that? <laughs> Any of us could do that. Uh, I'll, I'll jump in. I'll okay. Jump in. <laughs> um, so apartheid was... Uh, white minority rule in South Africa. Um, it was it was started through a variety of uh, policies that were put in place uh, at the beginning of the 20th century um, in terms of who could own land, who had the rights of movement, who could hold power. Um, it it regulated pretty much every part of every part of life across South Africa. And when you say um, white minority rule, we're not talking about a, mi a minority of like 49.5%. We're talking right. about a minority of, um, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, like uh, 18, 20%, somewhere in that zone. Right, I think. Around, right around in there. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking between 20%. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we have a, a huge supermajority of the population being disenfranchised under the apartheid system, um, and and not even disenfranchised, but um, you know held in in a position of extreme disempowerment, um, and having, as you said, virtually every aspect of their lives regulated by um, a ra a series of racist. Uh, institutions and all of this was legalized built into rule after rule in terms of travel education mm -hmm. I mean literally they could not travel from one village to the next uh, uh, unless there was a permit so uh, an extensive legal system that enabled white South Africa to control the vast majority of black South Africans hyper segregation in a sense. right right um, 
So, so that ended in 1994 with the um, with the election of Nelson Mandela. 1994 was the election when the majority of South Africans, um, Black South Africans, uh, were first able to to vote in a presidential election. Um, overwhelmingly, the vote went to Nelson Mandela, who had uh, led the African National Congress, the ANC, um, for several years. Although had been in prison for 27 of those. Um, because he was considered a terrorist, um, including by the United States, by the way. We, yeah. we definitely called Nelson Mandela, who all of us, I think, tend to think of as like, you know, happy, huggy grandpa guy. We called him a terrorist and, and supported him being thrown in prison. So just FYI, that's what our government did. Um, <laughs> so he, he became president in 1994 um, at the head of this um, uh, uh, this sort of campaign um, of South Africa as the Rainbow Nation, um, which we can talk about. That I could talk about, you know, for an hour as well, frankly. Um, but anyway, he came into power. The ANC has been in, in power since then. Um, all the, the three presidents um, that have um, that have been in power since uh, 1994 have all been from the ANC, including uh, the latest, the current, the current, although not probably for long, President Jacob Zuma, uh, who is in power, who is quite a character. Uh, just, <laughs> just in general. Um, so but one, of, but, has... but somebody who who has, uh, despite uh, a lot of corruption allegations against him, still has uh, a, a, a certain level of legitimacy among many South Africans because he was a leader in the the freedom fight. Yes. So Jacob Zuma has been. I mean, he's been part of the ANC. Um, leadership for you know for decades um, this is I mean this is a thing about legitimacy too to a lot of South Africa's population is that um, there is I mean there are there are a couple of generations of ANC leaders who just hold a very a very particular kind of place in the South African imagination and the South African heart he also um, spent 10 years for, in jail as well and yeah. uh, and was one of the major leaders in the uh, the uh, <clears throat> the military wing that led the struggle mm-hmm. against apartheid. Right, exactly. Um, which is, a, you know, is a, again, a part of the ANC, I think, that we, we talk less about now mm-hmm. um, because of the emphasis on uh, reconciliation and sort of nonviolent, um, nonviolent protests at, at, toward the end of apartheid. Um, but there, there absolutely was a, you know, a military wing of, of the anti-apartheid struggle. And I, I don't, Americans don't like to talk about that kind of stuff um, <laughs> um, because it, I think it makes us uncomfortable in a variety of ways. But, um, you know, the but interesting yeah, that's where thing that sort of comes from. Also, <laughs> is, is I was in South Africa in 1993 and early 1994, just before the first real free elections in that country, and there was so much excitement. There were people that were having seminars on how to vote. They were giving people instructions. The excitement about the move towards democracy um, elevated, I think, the ANC to this uh, party that, and, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if you look at other countries in Africa, many times the party that led the independence movement, they stay too long. Or maybe I'm wrong here. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely one of my sort of broader general points <laughs> when it comes to um, both Zimbabwe and South Africa, um, because the parties in power in both of those places are the parties that are associated with the liberation struggle from white majority rule, um, and 
and sort of more broadly, I mean, where you see liberation struggles in countries that become independent or that win independence, um, I think we're seeing this play out in, in Libya in a variety of ways. I think we're seeing this play out um, in, in a whole variety of places. Um, that's really powerful. And I mean, it's, again, I mean, just I'm going to I'm going to keep doing this, this history thing. So I think it works. But like. That also happened in U.S. history. I mean, like, the first several presidents were, like, associated with the revolution in some way. Like, they were they were people that Americans, and, and by Americans, I mean, like, the four people who were allowed to vote at the beginning. Um, four men who were allowed to vote at the very beginning. Um, like, they were people who were associated with that struggle. Um, and so that was really important to people, Um that's how sort of that patriotism is renewed. And so um, I, I find it helpful to think about it in those terms because I help, it helps us, I think, stop othering Africa in this way that like, well, Africans do this, but nobody else does. Well, everybody does that. That's, and that often you know, leads, though, that, that often leads to, when we speak of what's going on in South Africa and in Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. corruption at the top over time. It leads. To, it, it lends itself a, to the appearance of corruption, which is exactly what is happening. Right, and this is what's happening in both Zimbabwe and South Africa. Um, Zuma is is facing a no confidence vote, which is the, this is the biggest news. This is the new tomorrow. New thing that just came out um, this morning is that the ANC has actually um, decided to support a no confidence vote for Zuma to remove him from power, um, which incidentally is the same thing that happened to his predecessor. <laughs> Um, at about the right. at about the same point, I think in his presidency, um, the ANC is looking at this um, further. In, I mean, over the last several months, um, with a more and more political lens, because there are elections that are coming up uh, in 2019, and they're saying, you know, if, if we have a president who's continually dogged by scandals, who's continually dogged by these corruption allegations, many of which are are quite well substantiated. Um, Mm-hmm. You know we're not gonna we're not gonna win. I mean the ANC's it, the ANC's grip on power is is still pretty substantial, but opposition parties have been gaining a lot in the last few elections in the last decade or so, um, and so the assumption that the ANC is always going to be in power I think is um, is no longer a foregone conclusion. Which is actually so a sign of looking at it as, as a political party. I mean they're they're saying you know we're this really might damage us. Um, nobody nobody likes to think. Um, they're supporting a party that is corrupt. No one, no one likes corruption. And there have been sort of grassroots democracy movements um, that have gotten louder and louder in South Africa over the last couple of years. Um, and so I think this is a sign that the ANC perhaps is taking that very seriously, which, uh, which I think is a really positive thing. That's what I was just going to say. Like the fact that there are, are increasingly viable opposition parties and that the ANC is not the only, uh, you know, potentially viable game in town is a really, really good sign for democracy in South Africa. Absolutely. Um, And I'm hoping, I mean, to to sort of shift perspective just a tiny bit as well, I'm hoping that it's also a good sign in Zimbabwe, which, um, you know, which is, which has a sort of um, a a similar situation going on, but after, instead of one, you know, sort of, uh, one party rule or, or, you know, one party being in power. Um, it was it was one guy when guy was in power for Robert Mugabe. Years. Yes. Robert right. Mugabe, who, who finally stepped down at the end of last year. Um, his Zanu PF party is still in power. Again, the, the Liberation Party. Um, but uh, but uh, 
his predecessor or his um, successor, uh, uh, Emerson Mbagwa, uh, has announced that they're going to have elections in the next five months um, and has been on a big anti-corruption push. Um, and that there are several reasons that that might be happening. But, um, you know, fingers, fingers crossed for Zimbabwe. Man, they, they need a break. <laughs> and it would be nice to see, uh, again, stronger stronger democracy developing in both places. Um, Sarah, I think we're going to take a break here for a couple of minutes, um, and then we'll be back. Yeah. Okay. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn, but not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Cliff Staden, Professor of Political Science and International Studies at IU Southeast with my co-host Gene Abshire, also Professor of Political Science and, and International Studies at IU Southeast. And today we have the privilege of our, our colleague and our own student, um, our daughter, maybe, uh, Sarah Watkins, Dr. <laughs> Sarah Watkins, who has her Ph.D. in African history. And we're talking about uh, various hot spots on the continent of Africa. We've talked a little bit about South Africa, a little bit about Zimbabwe. So we thought we might move to West Africa and talk a little bit about Nigeria. So, Sarah, why, why is Nigeria important? Um. So Nigeria is a huge country in terms of population. Um, it's one of the most populated countries uh, in the world, and um, it has it has a really unique history in a variety of ways. Um, it has um, it has a history of I don't want to say it's just a history of conflict, but a history of um, people from a variety of religious backgrounds uh, sort of working together and learning how to live together and, and creating a nation um, out of those sort of disparate parts. Um, it also has also, oil. It also has oil, <laughs> which, is, which is a big thing um, to, to sort of consider um, when we approach Nigeria. Nigeria also has a huge number of 
uh, indigenous scholars, um, just in sort of in general, if you go to any African studies conference, I, I think like half of it is, is usually Nigerian. <laughs> um, there's just a, a really, there's a really strong intellectual tradition in Nigeria, which is, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, um, oil has been a big, a big source of conflict in Nigeria, um, as well as a, because it's a large source of power in Nigeria and wealth, um, and then who gets to control that uh, has been has been like the source of conflict. Again, resource conflicts, conflicts are local. Um, oil is a local conflict that became internationalized because of the global oil industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't want to get away from the sort of the local nature of that conflict. Um, and then, of course, the other thing that sort of connects it to West Africa uh, more broadly uh, is sort of this burgeoning conflict of, I don't, I don't know the precise word to use here. Do we want to say Islamic radicals? Is that Islamist insurgency? I think is Islamist insurgencies. Uh, You know, in Nigeria, we typically think of Boko Haram, right? Right. Uh, Boko Haram uh, is a big story um, because of the abduction of the Chibok schoolgirls in 2014. I think that's the thing that kind of put Boko Haram on the map for most Americans um, to bring back our girls. Uh, hashtag and sort of that movement. Um, a lot of the girls have come back. Um, a lot of them have not. Yeah. Bo- it hasn't been great circumstances for either, I don't think. Yeah. Boko Haram has made the news, but I'm not sure, uh, you know, in the face of other news that, that everybody realizes uh, just actually how awful they are. A couple of years ago, I mean, obviously kidnapping children is, is bad, but a couple of years ago, uh, they did come out, and I, I haven't check the data since I guess I should have done that but uh, they were number one in terms of of death toll uh, I think it w- would have been 2015 so they are uh, you know beyond horrible stuff like kidnapping children uh, they yeah. are a deadly deadly force much of their finances comes from um, kidnapping extortion uh, right. this, and, and trading young girls that they've captured for with the government for money in and in other governments so Right, um, and it's a it's a fairly new group. Um, it was it was founded in Maiduguri in the the northern part of Nigeria in 2002, um, and got increasingly radicalized uh, until 2009, when which is when the insurgency um, sort of broke out. And even that insurgency was insurgency was initially uh, put down very quickly, um, and their leader was executed. I think he was executed without trial. I mean, I think it was a very kind of a sticky business. Yes, um, he they were in the, in the struggle, he was captured and basically taken out back and shot. Yeah. Things um, got worse though so, in in 2011. Um yeah. violence spiked. Um and I think that actually does that uh, I think that correlates actually to uh goings on with uh the Arab Spring in some of the the places just a little bit north of Nigeria and specifically Libya with uh, the, yeah. the collapse of the Gaddafi government. And with that, um, basically the government losing control of uh, weapons and a yeah. lot of those flowed out of Libya with the porous borders and again, lack of mm-hmm. order that you have with um, the collapse of a government and then civil war, which, uh, you know, literally in terms of weapons fueled uh, various conflicts um, in that area, including uh, helping out Boko Haram. 
Right. And then um, the, the head of Boko Haram in 2015 also uh, sort of pledged loyalty to the Islamic State and renamed itself Islamic State in West Africa. Right. Um, yes, and prior and to so that, they had... sort of ideology um, has sort of aligned it, itself with that broader, I don't know if we want to call it a regional movement or a global movement, but um, has sort of aligned itself, you know, with the Islamic State. Now, prior to that, they had ties to al-Qaeda, uh, and we yeah. think, uh, the evidence seems to indicate there were some, some financial ties there, but then... As you said, in 2015, uh, they pledged allegiance to ISIS or ISIL or whatever term you want to use to, to talk about that particular group here. Um, I have a cat named ISIS, so I don't like that name. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, so so uh, Boko Haram in and of itself, uh, as we said, is, a, is an incredibly violent group that has um, caused a you know, terrible amount of of damage and, and, you know, physically and in terms of human life uh, in northern uh-huh. Nigeria. But the government response uh, has also been uh, problematic. Lots of allegations of human rights alle- uh, abuses, financing of uh, paramilitary organizations, militias that have carried right. out human rights abuses. There's some pretty appalling stuff um, that I've seen some questions raised about um, whether the government response might actually be pushing some people at least toward Boko Haram. Yeah, it hasn't, it hasn't been great. And I think, I think some of that um, sort of relates to domestic politics in, um, in Nigeria. Again, Nigeria has this, um, this history since independence in 1960 um, of, tensions that sometimes break out into open conflicts between uh, the largely Muslim North and the mm-hmm. largely, no, I want to say non-Muslim, I don't even know that I want to say Christian South, because um, I think that, that makes it sound a little more than it is. Yeah. There was a very debilitating um, civil back. war, right? The, the Biafran huh? civil war uh, fought in the 1960s. Yeah, um, yeah. so uh, Biafra, um, Biafra had declared, Biafra, um, which was a, an Igbo state, uh, Igbo being one of the, a, the main groups in um, Nigeria, had declared an independent state in the um, in the 1960s for about three years. Um, and uh, Biafra, I think, is a, is a particularly sad example of um, an attempt at at real decolonization. Um, when we talk about those sort of those borders that don't make a lot of sense or those colonial borders, um, Biafra was an attempt by the Igbo of Nigeria to say. This is this is our um, self determination. Uh, we're going to take this into our own hands, and we're going to create a country that makes sense for us. Um, and that was uh, not only really brutally put down by the by the government of Nigeria, um, but was also I mean, the offer did not get international recognition from almost anywhere, including um, including places like the United States. Um, there was something very close to genocide that happened. Uh, to the Igbo of, of uh, Biafra, um, there are still a lot of there are a lot of feelings about that. Um, I have, you know, met a number of of Igbo who sort of, especially older uh, Igbo who privately talk about um, how they hold allegiance to Biafra. Um, there are people who kept their flags. There are people who kept their currency, um, and they keep those things hidden because they're they're looked down upon. But there's sort of a neo Biafra movement mm-hmm. emerging as well. So that's a that's a thing to watch. <laughs> I have 
I have read about that. It has hit my radar, which means it probably is a thing to watch. Um, so, uh, also in the, in the neighborhood, uh, is, uh, Molly, which has also, uh, been struggling, uh, in the last, uh, years with Islamist insurgency, uh, different groups than, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in Nigeria. But would you want to give us some, some background information on that? Sure. Um, I mean, there's been this insurgency of Islamic extremists for a while um, in Mali. And my understanding of this, so it really started, I mean, the armed conflict really started in 2012. Um, and you have a, but you have a different sort of um, geography of, um, of religion and politics in Mali. Uh, Mali is already a mostly Muslim country, mm-hmm. uh, but Islam has really become politicized in a new way uh, in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Um, and so you have a lot of religious leaders uh, particularly in the northern part of the country around Timbuktu, um, that have become radicalized, which which has then sort of led to the creation of armed groups. Um, but I think there's an important nuance that you miss sometimes, um, and the International Crisis Group has done some really really great uh, research and reporting on this. So I would um, I would sort of push people in that direction if they want to know more. Um, but basically, religious leaders um, have taken a variety of sides in the political debate in Mali. And so some you will hear advocating for a more robust role for religion in public life, but not in a radical or violent sense. Um, more like standing for elections, um, putting together councils, doing what we would think of like grassroots political movements, not unlike religious groups in the United States. Um, people who say religion has a place in public life. Um, my religion is what you know, spurs me to, you know, want to be a public servant. So you have, you have sort of those religious leaders. Um, you have other religious leaders that warn against letting religion become too much of a force because they don't want it involved with the state at all. Um, again, um, these are debates that should be familiar to a lot of Americans, um, religious leaders who say, you know, we gotta, we gotta maintain this wall because we don't want the government too involved in our own religion. If we open that door, the door goes both ways. Um, neither of those two sort of sides there support or are supported by the armed groups who are a much smaller portion of the population. Um, so again, the radicalized portion of the population is quite small, um, but they just wreak an enormous amount of havoc. Um, they can do a whole lot of damage, particularly because some of the armed groups uh, sort of sort of came together after 2012 uh, when this insurgency started um, and have gotten the support of Al Qaeda, um, which right. again leads to a lot of um, financial support, but also um, arms that are coming in. Again, because you know this is sort of getting into the Sahara, um, closer to Libya, which has these porous borders, um, and Libya has become kind of a place for um, for you know massive illegal arms dealing. In, a- in addition to the these small Islamic groups, um, insurgencies, jihadists. You've also got the Tuaregs. Who are they? Or did I say that correctly? Tuaregs? You did. (laughs) That's actually where I was going to go, too. Yeah, just like the Volkswagen. Um, (laughs) um, So they're a group that's not, I mean, I I don't have a, I don't actually have a great understanding of of the Tuaregs, to be honest, other than they're a group that has sort of not not always played nicely with the central state in Mali. <laughs> yeah, my understanding is that they um, have had that they're a, a Berber 
primarily Berber ethnic group, um, and mm-hmm. that they have have repeatedly uh, rebelled against the government and have indeed uh, sought uh, autonomy for their region, so maybe a correlation to Biafra, um, a region that they call Azawad, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, mm-hmm. and that um, you know that has, has also been an element of the conflict, although there was a uh, peace agreement in uh, 2015 between the government and uh, Azawad separatists that, um, you know, has not gone so well, partly because yeah. uh, groups affiliated with Al-Qaeda, these Islamist uh, insurgent groups, have sought to undermine that agreement. Yeah, yeah um, it's, I mean, for them, I think it's been an opportunity to kind of, um, to kind of take advantage of the sort of already weak and unstable Malian state or Malian government um, to sort of exploit that. And I think that's what you see with a lot of, um, you know, with a lot of groups in a lot of these places, um, you're not going to have a really successful um, insurgency of extremists in a place where the central state is really strong, where the central state is really supported, um, where it has, you know, low levels of corruption. Um, You're not going to, for example, you're not going to see like a big Islamic insurgency in Rwanda, <laughs> right. because you have a highly centralized state. You have a government that has a lot of support. Um, you have very low levels of corruption. Um, I wouldn't say that you have democracy, uh, but the other the other elements are sort of there. So um, that's that's not really um, like a prime a prime spot for those extremists to start working. Um, but there are reasons that you've seen, you know, successful insurgencies or long, you know, long drawn out insurgencies in places like Libya, in places like Iraq, in places like Syria. Okay, I think we're going to take another quick break here. Um, so the International Power Hour will be right back. When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? When wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood or an earthquake is destroying buildings. When a tornado is tearing through town or a hurricane strikes. Or is the best time perhaps today? During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. And it's not always as simple as using your cell phone. That's why now is the time to take action. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political dash science. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it, and you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food, because 40% of all food in the U.S. never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com. Brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. 
This is Jean Abshire, um, co-host of the International Power Hour. Welcome back. Um, I'm here with my colleague, Cliff Staten, and also with our guest, Dr. Sarah Watkins, who is an IU Southeast alumna, uh, which makes us super extra happy to have her with us. Uh, she majored in political science and, I'm uh, sorry, political science and history uh, here. So she is actually a, a former student of Cliff and myself and went on to get her doctorate. So we're super proud of, of her and, and are really happy to be able to tap into her expertise. Uh, we've been talking about various issues um, on the African continent today, and I think we're going to move now to the Democratic Republic of Congo, which uh, is an interesting place, and despite its name, isn't very democratic. Um, I tell my students that if you're if you put democracy in your name, probably you don't have much. Yeah, I mean, I, it's kind of one of my guidelines in comparative politics, um, but. Uh, the, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, despite not having much democracy, does have a lot of other uh, does have a lot of other stuff that that makes it of interest uh, to all of us, um, including uh, natural resources, minerals that makes our lives go literally and figuratively. Because uh, thanks to things like coltan, uh, which is a mineral that uh, you know. Most of us probably haven't heard of, but none of us would have a cell phone that worked without it. Uh, right. That gives the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo some cachet in being one of the few coltan providers in the world, but also mm -hmm. uh, a lot of problems with also, that and other conflict minerals. Historically, the attraction of copper and cobalt, which still yep. is about 80% mm -hmm. of the economy, and that's attracted great power conflict and intervening and uh, with, with with the government of the DRC, so. Yes. Right. There's also been regional conflicts, um, and particularly during the Cold War, because um, the the southern province in DRC of Katanga has uranium. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, you know, I don't know. I feel like that might become important again soon, because everybody's trying to nuke everybody again. Yeah, the, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, actually, uh, a report I read on there, estimates that um, the Democratic Republic of Congo's resource wealth, uh, untapped, uh, untapped mineral resources, is valued at an estimated $24 trillion. Um, so we many people have the stereotype uh, in our heads of, of uh, countries on the African continent just, you know, being poor and hopeless, but... Uh, and, and having resources is not always a, a great thing. There is the concept of the resource curse, but $24 trillion in untapped mineral resources. Um, this, this certainly suggests that there's a, some different opportunities there than um, hopeless poverty. Absolutely. Um, and I think, that, I think the key there, and I think this has been the key, <laughs> this, is, this has been the key for the whole time, um, is a lack of infrastructure, and the reason that we have a lack of infrastructure is because Congo has been um, sort of plagued by bad leadership. Um, they had they had one beautiful shining moment uh, of a democratically elected leader who seemed to who seemed to genuinely, you know, want to want to be a good leader. Um, he was killed, right? Yeah, Patrice Lumumba was not perfect, mm -hmm. uh, but he was perfect enough that that the CIA and his enemies decided to assassinate him. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that happened in 1961. And, 
then they were sort of dragged into several decades of uh, kleptocratic rule by Mobutu Sese Seko, uh, who was supported in large part uh, by the United States during the Cold War because he was anti-communist. Uh, he was he he was a brilliant capitalist, frankly, for himself, um, mm. but was was pretty terrible to his people. So um, another one of these. Um, he was Mobutu Sese Seko was sort of the the quintessential. Um, like African dictator. So um, he may be a... Think of, yeah, like if you think of that sort of image in your head, it's like the guy on his throne with his leopard hat. Um, literally. And his, yeah, literally with his leopard hat um, yeah. and then his you know Swiss bank account that could buy and sell all of us numerous times over. Um, after the Cold War, though, he, he was no longer useful to the United States. And so he... Um, he, he fell pretty quickly, um, mostly because of the war that, um, that grew out of the Rwandan genocide in 1994. Um, he was finally uh, brought down in 1997 uh, by a coalition of um, Congolese rebels led by Laurent Kabila, um, as well as uh, President Paul Kagame of Rwanda and Yuwara Museveni of, of Uganda. Um, Laurent Kabila was in power um, for about three years until his son Joseph overthrew him, and Joseph has been in power ever since, uh, since 2005. And won't leave. And won't leave. He was supposed to leave. He was term limited uh, by the Constitution, so he should have been out of power in December 2016. Um, and basically what happened, um, and uh, uh, the Congolese scholar uh, Jason Stern, who runs the uh, Congo Politics Center at uh, NYU, has written a ton about this, so if you want to dig into this more, Jason Stern is your guy. Um, Kabila basically dragged his feet on setting up elections. I mean, he, he just kept saying, yeah, we're totally gonna have elections. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll plan them eventually. Um, and in a country as large as DRC, with the lack of infrastructure that you see in DRC, you can't just call a snap election where it's, you know, it's gonna happen in six weeks. And so even several months out from when elections were supposed to happen, uh, Stearns and a variety of other Congo watchers were saying, you know, this is gonna be bad, Kabila's gonna stay in power, we're gonna see some, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna see some conflict um, and some tensions around this. Um, opposition parties, were, again, were also trying to get him to, to call elections and he just wouldn't do it. Um, and so, you know, December 2016 came and went and he kept making excuses. And so finally, um, in December 2017, so just a few months ago, uh, we started seeing pretty large protests in Kinshasa, which is not something that we've seen in a long time. Um, over a dozen people have been killed in these protests over the last couple of months. Um, and so those have been those have been pretty bad. The Congolese government has gotten a lot of criticism for the way that it's handled dissent, particularly dissent that's seen as quite legitimate since we're, they're having a constitutional crisis. I mean, if we had that kind of a constitutional crisis, I hope that, you know, we would also have a couple of protests. Um, but the good news out of this, and I think this is this is my sort of positive spin on this, um, is that the government officials are finally starting to talk about Kabila leaving as if it is no longer in doubt. Um, the way that the government is talking about the end of Kabila's term is very like when he leaves office, not if he leaves office. Um, that doesn't mean it's gonna happen immediately. Uh, there is not a leading candidate to replace him. Some of the opposition leaders are pretty, pretty shady characters. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily the best of all news, but, uh, you know, if we can have something approximating a peaceful transition of power, that would be, that would be super great. Is uh, Kabila on the same page with that? I mean, does he know that well, it's a win? I think he, I think, you know, I mean, 
mean, the government officials that are talking about him leaving are pretty close to him. Okay. Um, I don't. I mean, he hasn't come out and been like, "Yo, when I leave power." Um, but you know, I think he kind of, I think he kind of knows which way the wind is blowing. <laughs> I don't know that he wants to mess with everybody. So, um, I think it's a matter of. Um, I mean, I, he might be trying to figure out who's going to kind of uphold his legacy, or you know, that kind of thing. I'm not. I'm not sure about that, but. That, that's you know, good news. It's that becoming more of a win, not if. So, w- when he steps down. But, uh, again, this is a country that suffered years of civil war, ongoing right. conflict in the East, and literally millions of people have been killed. It's something I think yes. it's the best-kept terrible secret in, in, in the world today, the numbers of people who have died. So how do yeah. you – is there plans for some type of – I know in Latin America – where, where I, what I teach, you know, quite often after conflict, there have been reconciliation committees set up to try to address some of these issues. Is that on the horizon, possibly? Not as far as I have heard um, anywhere. Um, and part of that, I think, is because so many of the conflicts are ongoing, particularly in the East. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, uh, the, the conflict in Ettore province has sort of reignited uh, in the last year or so. Um, so that's you know, that's kind of an ongoing thing. Um, the Kivus are both, you know, in and out of conflict. Um, a lot of that having to do with internal politics in Rwanda. Yep. Uh, because Rwanda can't keep its hands out of Eastern Congo for a whole variety of reasons that I could spend an hour talking about. Um, and in Uganda as well. Um, you also, one of the things that also sort of keeps the East, I think, in a, in a sort of, state of instability is the fact that first Ugandan president, Yuwari Museveni, has been in power since 1986, um, and it, it, he's looking less and less likely to stay there forever. I mean, he, he can't. He'll, he'll die eventually, but um, looking less and less likely to, to stay in power forever. You've had a lot of um, sort of grassroots democratic movements going on in Uganda, some of them related to um, actually LGBTQ activists, which um, which is heartening, but also terrifying in a variety of ways. Um, and then you also have the, the status of Paul Kagame in Rwanda, who has extended his power ostensibly constitutionally until 20, I think 2035, something like that. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's going to happen forever either. <laughs> and so I think both of those things keep Eastern Congo, which are very, which are very tied to um, Rwanda and Uganda in various ways, kind of on their, on their toes at all times. Um, so it's, I don't, I don't know that there's anybody with enough power at this moment to say, let's have a truth and reconciliation commission. Okay, Sarah, we have um, literally less than a minute left. Um, so okay. could you, <laughs> could you uh, give us, uh, we've talked a lot about, about a lot of negatives. Um, could you give us uh, real quickly one or two uh, positive things to, to step out on? I will. Uh, first, in Olympic news, uh, we have a Nigerian women's bobsled team, the first Nigerian team ever at the Winter Olympics. They're all former track and field stars. They're amazing. Uh, they all live in Houston. So go Nigerian Bakla team. Um, you have a lot of child soldiers being freed in South Sudan, which uh, is a positive sign that the government maybe is committed to no longer recruiting children, which I think is a positive. Um, and then finally, I think I would spin this. Uh, a lot of what we perceive as negative stories are quite positive. 
Uh, the political upheavals in Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Kenya, for example, are part of efforts by these countries to democratize. Um, the Seize Must Fall protests in South Africa are a young generation that believe in the promises of the anti-apartheid movement. Um, the protests in Kinshasa are coming from people who take seriously the tenets of a democratic republic, and I think that's all positive. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your insights. Uh, next week on the International Power Hour, we're going to talk about some major news issues going on uh, in the world, so, sort of just hit some um, kind of current events hotspots. Thank you for listening. This is Jean Abshire.